0: Welcome to Passing Years CAM Podcast, Conversations on Aerodigestive Management. This episode of CAM features your host, Dr. Kristen King, and guests, Dr. Amy Freeman-Sanderson and Laura Brooks, having a conversation about starting research in clinical practice.
1: Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us again. I am with Dr. Amy Freeman-Sanderson, and we're going to continue our conversation about research. So let's chat a little bit about what clinicians either are doing or can do in their practice. It's very easy to incorporate research into what they're already doing.
2: Oh, a lot yeah. of people
1: think it's extra work or they need to find an extra hour or two in their day because it's something different, but you can incorporate it into what you're doing and not actually add on the workday day, in that sense. I mean, you do have to write the paper type of thing if you want to submit it somewhere, but the actual collection of the data can be within that workday and within what they're doing with their patients.
2: And certainly, I mean, we're doing small amounts of research or we should be with every patient we're doing. It's looking at, so what are, what are my aims? So what methods am I doing in my approach? what has been the outcome so um, has the patient managed or not that's all that's a research that's research it's clinically clinically focused and clinically facing research and if you think about it on, a, on that smaller scale then we're writing up what we did what the results were and coming up coming up with recommendations so doing research is doing that in a more systematic way so thinking about what you know, what are the methods? What are the data we're collecting? So we're already doing that. And it's looking at how do we integrate that? And how do we add to the evidence? Because we really need to collectively add together to the evidence. um, And certainly having, if you want to publish, um, having speaking to different mentors. So we've got great speech pathology mentors, but we also, you have your team around you. You have people that at your institutions that are going to be engaged in research. So start a conversation with them and say, look, I'm collecting this data. How could I do this systematically so I could present a case series? I've got 10 patients. You've got a case series then, and maybe that's presenting that um, in-house first of all, and then taking steps towards then um, presenting at a conference and publishing.
1: And if we can get more people to do that, then we're just adding to our evidence base for what we're doing with our patients. And that's a big question that comes up all the time. Like, where's the evidence, you know, for what you're doing. And, and we know some of our things have evolved out of practice and not really out of evidence. The evidence kind of came second for some of what we, do. and adding to that would be really beneficial. And you mentioned systematic and the two words I was going to use was if you're systematic and consistent between Mm -hmm. patients in your data collection, that's when you can actually pull that data together. And use it and and potentially present it or publish it and have some research. Exactly. that's yeah, right. that's really the the piece that has to happen is just having, like you said, being systematic and and then consistent with patient yeah. to patient. I mean, really reflecting
2: on what we're doing every day, what clinicians on the ground are doing in the front line. So looking at collecting my data, how how do things change with this population? Um, and looking at specifically sort of what am I measuring um, and how am I measuring that? So I think that's where it's just having those considerations can really strengthen um, what data you collect and how you can report it.
1: And I think it's critical, like you you mentioned, getting the clinicians on the ground, having real world evidence, and not just what we've done in labs, but having it with the patients and in the facilities and, and, being able to document and, and um, share that information. So That's I'm glad right. you brought that up. Yeah, there are there are ways people can incorporate research and, and expand. It'll just expand our practices and, and the support for what we That's do. That's right.
2: I mean, we need to be partners in this. It doesn't happen in isolation. Research doesn't happen in silos. Everyone can contribute um, really important aspects and it's looking at how do we get that team together to be able to do that? So, I mean, if you are a clinician and you uh, would like to do this, but I need that support. So you know, identify who the, the right partners are to be able to help you with that um, and share that as a team.
1: And I think uh, when you mentioned the research as an avenue for getting into the ICU and expanding your services, mm-hmm. another link there is just like you said, when you got started, the doctor said, where's the evidence? and there wasn't much and then he said well get me the evidence and that's kind of how you got started and and that could be true for others you know if if you don't have the evidence it's another way to get in you know say well i'll collect it you know let me and
2: and that goes both ways in terms of you know are there newer ways of doing things do we keep doing the same thing um so sometimes you de-invest to reinvest so look at how do we provide care more effectively so it's um Because resources, we all know that they're finite. There's finite hours in a day. So it's looking at how do we optimize that um, in the
1: most effective way. But speaking of research, I know you've got some ongoing research. What are your areas right now that you're working on?
2: Yeah, thanks for asking that. um, A a couple of projects, but a couple of big ones perhaps to highlight. Um, So I'm co-leading a... um, Core outcome set with Professor Louise Rhodes. Um, so she's based in King's College London. And uh, with a group of researchers, we're looking at what are the core outcome sets, um, you know, what are the core outcomes that should be collected in any study that looks at um, enabling communication with patients with artificial uh, artificial airways. So we're covering um, those with um, endotracheal tubes and tracheostomies, but It's really important to, uh, so what a core outcome set is effectively is that when people are doing research, what are the core items that they should be collecting data on? Because if we don't do that and we have different researchers around the world, it's hard to pull all of those results together and collectively get a a stronger signal in terms of what should we do, when should we do it. So um, we're in the process of establishing um, a core outcome set um so we'll be running um that the delphi soon and uh, establishing what researchers should do so um it provides guidance as well so back to when we were talking about the clinician that's going to provide some um help to clinicians to say okay if i collect this is what i should be collecting so if i'm collecting these points that's definitely heading in the right direction so we can compare um different outcomes for patients it makes it more effective so that particular process, um, it's a co-design process. So what it means is that we have clinicians, we have academics, we have patients, we have family members, because everyone has a different lens. And so what's an important outcome for me may not be the same as for a patient. So we need to have everybody um. You know, having a seat at the table for that. So that is underway at the moment. So a, um, a big project happening this year. So that's, um, yeah, that's really exciting. And um, my uh, sort of other project or other key area is looking at those patients that are very critically unwell and have been diagnosed with sepsis. So people uh, come through the intensive care very diagnoses. So... We have that combination of medical and surgical, and the same with admission types. Some people know they're coming to ICU, and some people know that they, they're not, that you know, it's an emergency from ED or the ward. So, what we're looking at are those that are sort of more critically unwell and have a, a diagnosis of sepsis or septic shock to look at those outcomes. So, um, to see if there's any, um, I guess, intervention or how do we support units as well to improve outcomes in swallowing and communication? So that's my um, other area. So um, yeah, sepsis is a major, a major um, problem. It's actually a global burden and it's, um, we know that it's a syndrome. So again, that concept of persistence illness post ICU. So we really need to uh, look at how we reduce morbidity uh, because it's not, we know we've moved away from mortality only it's looking at how do we um, improve um, participation how to improve function and um, try and facilitate that for patients
1: oh i'm going to be watching for those to come out and see what your results were <laughs> I, I always like reading your research but that's gonna i like i like both of those topics and i think the delphi studies really as you said, going to be a nice resource for people to help them yeah. even when they're planning their research, um, That's right. or clinicians who want, you know, are not sure what to look at. It'll give some guidance for that. So exactly. that that'll, be, that'll be really beneficial. I do want to talk for a second, maybe a couple of minutes about some of the aspects of research for people who may be listening and are not as familiar with the research process just to clarify some terms and and talk about some of the considerations. If you're thinking of starting research in your clinical practice, there are some things that should be in place. One thing you're gonna wanna check is does your facility or maybe an affiliation with your facility have an IRB? Now you've often heard the term IRB and people get IRB approval. What does that mean? IRB is an Institutional Review Board. And this institutional review board is made up of a group of individuals who are responsible for evaluating your research before you do it. They look to see if your patient population is appropriate, whether your methods are appropriate, and they're really making sure that you're providing an ethical study and following the proper parameters for patient selection or for for participant selection, I should say, and that you're not, you know, as an example, offering a bribe. You are providing ethical practices that are not going to cause harm and are not going to in any way be considered potentially very biased research or research that is not appropriate in some way. Another consideration for you with the Institutional Review Board is most require that you have CD training. So, you want to find out is that a requirement of your facility? Is it a requirement of your IRB or process that you go through? And so, what is CD training? Well, CD training is CITI, and it is Collaborative Institutional Training Initiative. That's what that CD stands for. This is an organization that oversees research across the United States. People will participate in a review that make sure you understand parameters and factors that might influence research. What they have set up is your institution or or whomever you're working through, they've selected certain modules that you must complete in order to become or get that CD certification. It's good for three years and then you have to renew it. So your initial training is usually pretty comprehensive And then your renewals are a shortened process, and they cover things like the ethics of patient selection or participant selection. Um, You read things like the Belmont Report, which covers kind of historically some of what's occurred in research, and it just makes sure that you have a good grasp on what ethical research is and the appropriate way to work with the participants. And there's, like I said, various modules that may have been selected by your facility. And then once those things are in place or you're meeting the criteria of your facility, then you have to think, what question am I going to ask? You know, Amy was talking about clinical focused research and having a systematic approach. So one of the things you're going to want to do is establish what is your question? We ask our questions often like, why? Why do we do certain things in practice? Well, this is your chance to answer those questions when you're working in your practice and you come across a situation where maybe you're not sure, and I'll use an example of the vent parameters that you want to use. So one of the things you look at are parameters, maybe of ventilator settings, like what is the PEEP when you see patients? Well, typically the recommendation for that positive end expiratory pressure, that PEEP is that it's 10 or below because the higher the PEEP. The sicker the patient, the higher the pressure, the sicker the lung. Well, you may not use that criteria, or maybe you're not sure what criteria you want to use for ventilator settings. And that might be something that you start collecting data on. So, the first thing you want to do is establish what is your question. Then you have to decide your methods. How are you going to collect the data? What are your groups going to be? are you going to have a control group? And if so, what is that control group patient population going to look like? I can give you an example there. If you're doing a study looking at TBI patients and you're looking at brain injury and cognitive processes, a good control group for that often is an orthopedic group. So if you have people who say are in because they broke their leg, but they don't have a brain injury, that can be a good control group because of the way they're treatment process goes, the medications they might be on. That's a way to balance that in order to have a control group, but you've got to make those determinations. If you've got access to a biostatistician, a a biostatistician is someone who conducts statistics on life-based research. So this could be, you know, plant and animals, it could be water-based, or it could be human-based. If you find biostatisticians who are familiar with human research They can then help you make that plan. They can help you determine how to formulate your question. They can help you determine the design of your study, like deciding things like the N. The N is how many people do you have to have in your study? In order to have a good study, you have to have a high enough N, a high enough number of people that the results have power. Power means that your study is at a level that the findings can actually be interpreted to mean what you're saying it means, and potentially be applied to a patient population. What is the effect size? What is the power of your study? And the biostatistician helps you make some of these determinations. They can also help you decide whether or not you can even get that data collected within a reasonable time based on a power analysis and really looking at how many people you're using for your study. So these are some of the things that you can go ahead and put into place. And Amy was talking about, you know, building it into your clinical practice. And if you look at a question that is something you ask in your everyday practice or is related to something you do in your everyday practice, what you want to do then is to look at how you can collect that data. Now, if you're not ready to start research you're like, whoa, that's you know, way too much for me to take on because I know I'm throwing some things out there with IRB and CD training. If you don't have time for all that yet, a good idea is for you to take your idea, your research area, say it's something to do with swallowing or it's something to do with cognitive therapy. Start just making sure you have good notes. How are you collecting that clinical data? Is it systematic Are you tracking the same thing with your different patients? Just think about building it into your practice. Just start with data collection so that if you get ready to go to the IRB to get that CD training, get things in place, you might do a retrospective study and already have data in place that you can use. And then you've just got to work out the analysis of that data and the write-up. And the write-up is what we're going to talk about next, because once you get all that information together and You've collected your data. Then we look at publishing it. And there's certain ways to publish. There's different places you can publish, different levels of publications that you might want to consider. Because when we publish, we look at several things. You might publish in a clinical journal or a clinical publication. Maybe that's not, it's got good dissemination, but it's not so critical on the research. Sometimes that's a good starting place to give you some ease and starting point, but you also may be doing a study that really needs to get out there and is clinically relevant, and you had really strong statistical findings, and then you might look for a journal that has more of an impact factor. So now that we've reviewed just a few little bits and pieces about research and research in your facility, I want to shift the gears a little, and we're going to talk with Laura Brooks, Welcome, Laura. Thank you for joining me today. Laura is a speech language pathologist from Children's Hospital of Atlanta, and she has her board certification in swallowing, and she works in the field of pediatrics. Thank you, Laura, for joining me to talk about publishing and your experiences with getting your research disseminated. Thank you, Dr. King, for inviting me
0: here. I'm honored to be a part of this. I think I I did want to to mention too that you made me think of that you could probably speak to better than me is like when you're talking about which um, journal to publish in, like for the passing rough stuff, um, the ENT, you know, everyone had talked about laryngoscope just being this really wonderful journal that's very hard to get into. It's hard to get published in. Um, and so we were kind of choosing, you know, we, the International Journal of Pediatric um, otolaryngology is also another one that's very hard to get into, but, um, we looked at, um, the impact factor. And so I had never even thought about an impact factor. Um, and you know, that's just basically, um, every journal has a ranking like New England journal of medicine is like, obviously the highest impact factor. Um, so the higher, the value is, um, the more impact it is, the more it's widely read. Um, and so I don't know what goes into that impact factor, but that's definitely something to look at when you're considering which journal you want to submit to.
1: No, that is um, that is true. And uh, I'm gonna, I've talked a little bit before you and I got on, i talked a little bit about research and some of the considerations and impact factors. One of them, and I actually recommend if people are just getting started, And especially if you're on your own, like now you've been lucky, you've got, you know, really good team and you've got a biased statistician and all these people really helping you. And I do realize people are going to have different levels of support. You know, some are going to have almost no support and they're going to be kind of on their own trying to do this. And then you're going to have people who have a team and there's a lot of people involved in it to help create the final article, you know, and to make sure that it meets certain criteria or is at a certain level so i would tell people you know shoot for what fits best audience wise mm-hmm. almost regardless of impact factor and i only say that if you because you mentioned some of the ones the ones you went to uh, laryngoscope those are difficult to get into as you mentioned and i would encourage people not to get discouraged and they get rejected because it, they the higher that impact factor the more difficult it is to get in all that means is it didn't fit that journal. There, there is a place for almost every publication. And sometimes you have to, you may have a study that you have to go with a lower impact factor initially, you know, until you build a little bit more, either if you're doing something with a group, it's not a case study. If you're comparing groups, maybe you have to have a larger N before it can get to one of those higher impact journals. Maybe it's too novel if you're doing a case study, mm-hmm. it might be too unique and novel to where some journals, they have a more restricted boundary of what they'll accept, you know, of patient populations and be outside that boundary. So you have to find a journal that has a different, um, they'll take more unique cases, you know, some won't really unique ones. So there's a lot of things that affect whether it's accepted or not. So I don't want people to get discouraged if their articles are and don't be surprised if it comes back requiring a lot of revision. <laughs> Pretty typical too.
0: Yes. And you know, that happened to me with my first case study. It was on a posterior tongue tie and um, I submitted it to laryngoscope and the, they immediately wrote back that that's just too controversial. That topic is just too controversial for the journal and then submitted it to dysphagia and it it, it was, it was the perfect home for it. And I'm just so glad that that happened. You know, it's funny. I, everyone hates rejection, but don't you learn so much from it? Like getting rejected for, um, you know, Asha not accepting us presenting in 2017, just so motivated me to do something else. So, um, and then dysphagia was by far the perfect home for that paper on tongue ties. And, um, and so it just like worked out. So the door, you know, I've certainly had doors closed. I um, Similarly, I applied for funding. And so that's another thing to kind of think of is don't get discouraged by not getting funding for my latest publication on puree, thickened liquids. I applied for funding and my, within that application was me just doing the flow testing. That was part of the, um, study and I did not, you know, my peer got, um, got the funding and I didn't, and that was great for her. And I was so happy for her, but what that door closed allowed for me was to kind of rethink what I wanted to do with the study. And I thought, well, I don't want to just do flow testing. Like that's not enough when you're talking about a novel idea, like, um, is puree is thickening with puree safe for kids? Is it safe under the heat of your oral, um, cavity? Is it, is it safe with the sheer rate of swallowing? And so I picked up the phone, I Googled like rheologist Georgia tech. Um, okay. And then I found Victor Breedveld and I literally picked up the phone and I'm like, hi, my name is Laura Brooks. I have zero funding, but this is what I'm passionate about. And we talked for about an hour on zoom and he's like, I'm in, um, uh, because he's passionate about that. And he, be, he has children, you know, young children. And he, he, it's from Europe and couldn't imagine that we thicken with cornstarch stuff like that. So, so that was motivating for him. And so um, had had that door not closed, I would never have thought outside the box and kind of pursued this other thing with Dr. Breedveld, which ended up just being exactly what I needed. So um, I've certainly had lots of rejection <laughs> in my life, um, which I try to, you know, it bruises your ego initially. It's a little tough, it's not fun. Um, but always some kind of silver lining has come out of it when, when I look back on it.
1: Well, I think that's probably a really good place for us to stop. And I think I would share off of that, you know, going back to that old saying that people say, often say when one door closes, another Mm -hmm. one opens or the window might open, but you know, something else (laughs) opens. So that's Very true for research because there is rejection. It's hard to get published sometimes, but it's well worth it. You just like, you use the word home and that's true. Like you just have to find the right home. Hopefully people look up your publications because you've got quite a few that uh, can enhance the care that people are providing their patients because it's well, it's much needed in pediatrics. So I love what I, you know, I love what you do. I love the work you're doing, the publications you're doing, everything. So just keep up the great work. And if we can ever help you out, give me a call.
0: Uh, well, I do. You guys are so supportive
1: of us. We just, Passy Muirval has just
0: been such a wonderful company um, and really helpful when I was initially answering those questions about, well, how do you measure tracheal pressure? I mean, I was on the phone with someone from Passy Miraval daily sending the videos of the manometer. Am I reading this right? And so um, just the teaming up that Passing does with these facilities is amazing. So definitely, um, I owe you a huge thank you, and I just want to encourage other people to reach out to Passing Mirvall for those resources, the CEUs that they have online. If they're willing to do it; just give them a call.
1: I want to thank everyone for joining in with us today and listening on this podcast. We have just talked with Dr. Amy Freeman Sanderson a bit earlier, and with Laura Brooks, both speech language pathologists who do quite a bit of research in their facilities and in their practices, and we've talked about different aspects of getting started with some research in your clinical practice, so I hope you've gotten some tidbits that you can take away from this podcast. Be on the lookout for more. We'll keep bringing more to you with more information on research and various aspects of clinical practice. Thanks again for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of CAM. We are happy to offer continuing education credit through ASHA for this podcast. To receive credit, please go to www.passymuir.com podcast and click on the continuing education link under this episode. Then you will either create an account or log into your existing education portal account. Complete the quiz and course evaluation for your podcast episode. Your certificate will be available for download once completed.